Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. So what is social psychology? Well, it's the scientific study of human social interaction, including our perceptions of others and of social situations. And I'll give you a little hint. Since it's our first time in lecture together, if you hear me repeat myself verbatim, that means what I'm saying is important and it's going to be appearing either as we continue throughout the lectures or it's going to be appearing on some type of quiz, paper, test, etc. And it is something that you want to pay attention to, write down, and be sure you understand. So the overarching question, what is the nature of human social interaction? This is a very big question, and I want you to know that we are going to be answering it always from the social psychological perspective. You could answer it from a lot of perspectives. You could ask the question of a neuroscientist, what is the nature of human social interaction? And they'll say, well, if I put you into my fMRI machine, and I look at your brain while you're interacting, different parts of your brain light up with chemicals and electrical currents, and so human social interaction is this series of patterns of electrical currents through the brain. That's one answer. Another answer, if you were to go to a pastor or a theologian and say, what is the nature of human social interaction? They might say, well, we know from the Bible and from Jesus that human social interaction is an opportunity for us humans to serve each other, to love each other and to love God, to love our neighbor, and to serve each other as best we can. That's a very good answer, as is the neuroscientist's answer, but it's not what we're getting at in this course. In this course, we're always going to be looking from a social psychological perspective, and I'm going to be laying out some of the specifics of that for you today. So some of the questions we could ask, how can we reduce aggression? What factors are related to helping? Are prejudice and racism inevitable? Well, this is where the rubber meets the road for social psychology. And we're going to hopefully be getting into the specifics of these, but if you want to know what is social psychology used for, part of what it's used for is answering these very difficult questions about aggression, about helping, about prejudice and racism. So we'll be getting more specific into that later, but keep in mind this is where we're headed. So social psychology is relevant to everyday life. It certainly is. Once you begin to learn about it, you'll begin to see social psychology everywhere. I'll give you an example from my life. Uh, I was in a big department store. I was looking for some type of a computer cord for my laptop. And I saw a person with a name tag next to me. And I said, hey, do you know, you know which of these cords I could use for my laptop? And then I looked at their shirt. And it, though they had a name tag on, the shirt was for... A clothing store, some you know, a store that was somewhere else in the mall. So they were doing what I was doing, which was looking for an electronic cord, but because they had a name tag on, in my mind I skipped the, uh, the conscious thought and just used the heuristic. A heuristic is something we'll learn about later. It's a mental shortcut. So being in a store, having a question, seeing a person with a name tag, the heuristic in my mind said, oh, just ask them your question, without pausing and, and thinking and going, oh gee, the person with the clothing store shirt probably doesn't work in this electronics store. So once you understand social psychology and some of the concepts, uh, you'll begin to see it, uh, I'm hoping, 
in your everyday life all the time. I'm going to be asking for specific personal examples from you throughout the course, so it is a good thing to start thinking about uh, seeing these things as you go through your life because you will be needing examples. So how do psychologists study social behavior? Well, the empirical approach, scientific observations, and they're more objective. A couple things specifically we want to talk about hypotheses, which are testable predictions or explanations of some phenomenon. So uh, my wife the other day told me, oh, my coworker did this strange thing at work. And I said, well, what's your hypothesis for that? And uh, I like to use technical language a lot because I was trained in the sciences and that's kind of how I think. And she's gotten used to it. So she said, well, I think, you know, we were very busy and it was rainy, so we were stuck inside. And I think that that's why she did this thing. So to test that hypothesis, uh, we're going to see if uh, on a sunny day or a nicer day or a day uh, that isn't rainy, if her coworker does the same strange thing or if she doesn't. And with that, we've proposed a hypothesis and we're testing it in a real-world situation. Now the next point are theories. These are general explanations based on large numbers of observations. So um, my old professor at Harvard, Jim Sedanius, created social dominance theory. And this is a theory that takes this large number of observations on uh, violence and oppression and racism and how some groups tend to dominate others and some groups try to dominate others, how groups try to get power over each other. So Jim took all of these observations and boiled them down into what he called the social dominance theory. And it, it does appear in your textbook and it's something that uh, we can discuss when we get to it. But taking this large number of observations and boiling it down into a specific theory it's going to be an important note to know. So the goal of the empirical approach, formulate a good hypothesis, interpret the results as accurately as possible. So some types of empirical strategies. Well, there's experimental strategies. Those are testing cause and effect. So I work in the study of gambling addiction. That is when people gamble too much in unhealthy ways and it has a negative outcome on their life. So I'm likely to use examples from gambling addiction because it's what I'm surrounded by all the time. So in this case, um, a laboratory experimentation is when you manipulate independent variable to assess its effect on dependent variables in a lab setting. So in the case of gambling addiction, we might have a slot machine in a laboratory setting and you set it so that you can only play once every 10 seconds instead of once every two seconds which really slows the game down and you see if people play at a slower pace do they end up spending less money overall and therefore maybe avoid some negative consequences. So this is something you could test in a lab setting and it has been tested. Now a field experiment is when you manipulate an independent variable in a real life setting. So some folks did this laboratory experiment with the slow slot machines. They took the slow slot machines into the real world set them up in a casino setting in Australia and tried to see if having these slower slot machines improved people's outcomes. That means they had less problems with their gambling. Well, what they found was instead of playing these slow machines, people would put their chair between two machines, split their money between the two machines, and just go back and forth playing each of the machines. 
and so actually try to speed up their play. So this field experiment uh, actually didn't work, but it is an interesting example of taking a laboratory experiment that did work into the field and finding that it doesn't work. So number two are correlational studies, and these assess relationships between variables. Now no cause and effect can be established in a correlational study. So one type of correlational study is nat naturalistic observations. That's when you look at uh, behavior in real life without manipulating any variable. In my world, it's when you go into some sort of gambling establishment, watch people take very careful notes, and try and uh, come up with theories or first hypotheses to be tested and then later theories to explain behavior. And then finally in this point are surveys, which most people are very familiar with. You ask questions regarding behavior, opinions, uh, many times done on paper, sometimes done online these days. A very, very common way of doing research is to ask a series of questions and record them. And then last, content analyses. This is when you observe specific themes in a text. A recent one I was reading was somebody was looking at gambling advertisements, and they were trying to connect advertisements to dreams, that is, people dreaming about winning. So they looked at several hundred gambling advertisements and made careful notes about every time they showed somebody winning in some sort of dream um, location, like a dream vacation or a fancy car or a big house or what have you. So that would be a content analysis. So what are some common findings in social psychology? Well, number one, humans are intrinsically relational beings. This won't come to any surprise, uh, as any surprise to you, my guess is. And humans often tend to act in a self-serving manner. This probably will also not surprise you. If you're watching humans uh, anywhere at any time, almost always they are being relational and very often they are acting in a self-serving manner. That's something you can see every day of your life if you're outside. So is there a positive or negative focus in social psychology? Well, uh, especially since World War II, there's been a negative focus on finding the problems in human social in interactions. And this really made sense. At the, after World War II, there were many very, very negative things in World War II, specifically concentration camps in Germany. There were internment camps for Asian Americans here in the United States. There was the dropping of atomic bombs. There was a lot of big questions that came out of World War II, and many of them were very negative. Some examples relating specifically to social psychology, questions of obedience, uh, questions of negative potential of groups, and racism. So there was this negative focus coming out of World War II. But since then we have positive psychology, which has begun to pick up some steam, studying gratitude, studying the positive impact of groups, but overall, all in all, there's probably more on the negative side. But our negative potential is evident in everyday life, and could this focus provide an incomplete picture of humans? We'll talk about this more as we go on. So what are some advantages to the empirical approach? Well, first, a testable hypothesis can help guard against intuitive hunches that might be biased. We're going to talk a lot about bias. And there are a lot of different biases that can creep into our everyday life, and we'll talk about that uh, a lot more as we go along. 
The systematic generation of data helps to investigate hypotheses and helps generate new hypotheses and theories. And new hypotheses and theories are very important in social psychological research. And finally, some disadvantages of the empirical approach. They only predict and explain the average person, not any specific individual's behavior. This is very important. Just because most people uh, who are like, who have some characteristics, do some behavior, that doesn't mean that you can predict the behavior of any specific individual. So they cannot explore the main life questions such as purpose and meaning. Again, we have theology and philosophy to do that. It cannot tell us which morals or virtues we should be working toward. That's very important, too. We only want to stay within the social psychological realm in this course. For questions of morals and virtues, we need to turn to pastors and mentors and leaders. And finally, the biases of researchers, of which there are many, and one of the reasons we use the empirical approach is to try to avoid these, but uh, there are many that creep into research of all types.